The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from John eleven, seventeen through 36. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and gently troubled. And he said to her, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Roscoe. Well, I was, uh, my name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't gotten to meet you, by the way, I am the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church and um, love to get to know you or meet you. And uh, you can grab me after the service or uh, at another point, you can put your email down. Um, also, there's a black pad on every pew or row or aisle. Make sure you grab that, sign that, pass it along the way, even if you've done it before. And you can put your email down, um, and, and we can connect. I'd love to get together with you, even if we have before, and, uh, and catch up or, or get to know you and your story. Uh, speaking of, I was able to, um, this weekend, to uh, really enjoy a couple moments of uh, the Nashville life where you get to hear singer-songwriters. And that's one of the beauties of being in the city, isn't just the amount of music. Uh, it's, it's kind of what's behind it, I find, to be the more I, I live here, the longer I live here, uh, the more I really get into that scene. Um, and because that you learn more, and many of you who are here, they're in, this, in the industry here, know the, the heart connection, the things that are involved. It's so easy for so many of us, you know, you hear a song on the radio, you, you, you grab something on Spotify, and you enjoy it, uh, but sometimes you, if you hear the lyrics, if you're a lyrics person, you listen, and you go, where, where, what's this from? You know, where's the story from this? 
And uh, this, this weekend, it was really enjoyable to me um, to be able to hear several uh, uh, singer and songwriters actually express the reality of where so many of their songs come from. And it's cool because when you sit and you hear this history or even a current moment that engages a song that maybe you've heard a thousand times, and you hear their story and how this song was created or engaged with it, you go, whoa, there's something much. That, that, that takes it to another level. That, that makes you really get involved in it. And it's easy when you come to a passage, you know, we're at church, you hear a Bible passage read to you, and, um, you know, maybe this is one that's familiar to you, maybe you're here this morning, and and I don't presume that that anybody in here knows where uh, this passage is from, or, uh, you know, knows the Bible all that well, and if you're here, welcome this morning. Uh, We we want that. One of the things I, I, I want us to recognize is though, when we're reading these passages, we're not just hearing something that's kind of a, oh, that's enjoy, that's sweet, how Jesus kind of, you know, cares for them. We're actually stepping into the narrative of someone's story being told. Martha and Mary <clears throat> and their brother who just died, Lazarus, are not just acquaintances with Jesus, they're actually friends of his. And when this story is recounted, it's not just one of those kind of like, hey, let's, maybe we can talk more about this later, you know, kind of story. It's, you're actually stepping into the, their process of grief, of loss. You're hearing how, how the song, so to speak, was made. You're getting to actually take on what they encountered and who they encountered in Jesus. And it's kind of uncomfortable. I mean, on the outset, this story may look like Jesus is, is just showing himself to be this kind of guy who steps in and, and you know, proves himself to be uh, the son of God. But the way he does it is behind the scenes in their real story. I want you to hear how Martha and Mary would tell it. And those are the two things we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Martha and we're going to look at Mary And we're going to look at how they engage this massive topic of resurrection, life, hope in the midst and face-to-face with their pain and even death itself. You know, Martha, um, here at the beginning, it's gone, we're kind of picking up in the middle of a passage, so somewhat Jesus is in another location, only two miles away. So think about that, two miles, that's not too far. Many of you would run that like this, right? Well, two miles away, but he hears that Lazarus has died. And when he comes, the the author, John, makes a real point in 17 to say, now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And then verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off. Why in the world to use those two verses? The author wants us to know, and every commentator, everybody you read about, will say, this is a huge deal. Because in Jewish life, three days was the appropriate amount of time to naturally mourn the loss of a loved one. They're wanting us to see something, four days. The fourth day was the day, and and two, two parts of this. One is that the mourning actually kind of receded and stopped. 
So for Jesus to come on the fourth day, it was actually way out of etiquette. It was a very odd, it was actually uncomfortable and inappropriate approach to the normal movement of mourning for that day. But the, the other thing that was even interesting about it is that the, the Jews believed that on that fourth day, but after three days, one reason that it was so important is that is when the actual soul of the person left the body. That's when they were gone. And, and the decomposition of the body actually began. And so Jesus is coming in, in not just in a socially inappropriate way, but he's coming after the fact. He's coming, Lazarus has died. And here's, here's the kicker that's not read here, that's the beginning of this chapter, that gets me every time I read it. It says that <clears throat> this very thing. It says that Jesus found out that he was, now Jesus loved Martha, and when he heard about Lazarus, he stayed. He stayed. He didn't go. He stayed. Now, you hear the question from Martha and Mary, same question asked. If you were here, it's two miles away. Where are you? What are you thinking? What are you doing? And, and here's the beauty of it. And a, and a commentator that I love, uh, now listen to this name, Herman Ritterboss. If that doesn't like scream, I know the Bible. Herman Ritterboss. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite commentators <clears throat> is this thick commentary on John, beautifully written. And he says it in this way. He says, Jesus deliberately waits until his enemy seems to have the upper hand of authority and destruction. And then he comes. Jesus is wanting, why, why the point? Martha is mourning and wrestling with the fact that Jesus didn't come. He's limited. And when he does come in this moment, that he, if you'd been here, verse 21, my, my brother would not have died. They've seen him heal sick people. They've seen him do a lot of things. But now it's past the point. Four days decomposition is set in. And Jesus tries to encourage by saying, <clears throat> and says, your brother will rise again. And Martha's like, yeah, I know, I know. Thank you for the, I know the, the understanding of Jewish thought of resurrection, which was at some day in the future, we will all rise again. When the Messiah returns, everyone will rise again. It's the equivalent of, of, of losing a loved one and someone putting your hand on your shoulder and saying, you'll see them in heaven. That's what it felt like to her. But what Jesus is saying is far bigger than this. He, he is moving into death in a way that is incredibly odd because he doesn't just say, you will see your brother rise again. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Like his answer to her about, yeah, one day I know there'll be a resurrection. I know that we will be in heaven together. I'll get to join him again. He says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. That is an absolutely bizarre thing to say. For him to say, he doesn't just say there will be a resurrection and I will raise him from the dead. And he, look, here's the punchline. He would raise him from the dead right after this. 
But he says, I am the resurrection. Not just he's going to rise again. Watch this. He puts himself in that position. There's a Sri Lankan Christian who talks about the beauty of this. And he says, biblical salvation is different. And it lies not in an escape from this world and a transformation of it, but in the transformation of it. You will not find hope in the world from any, in any other religions or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That's why when people say, don't you think there's a salvation in other faiths? I always say, what salvation are you talking about? Not this salvation. No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world, for, ordinary, for the ordinary world, than the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For him to say, I am the resurrection and the life, is saying, eternal life is now. It is here in front of you. And it is engaging the very death that you are engaging. I'm here to encounter that. I'm here to to experience that. I'm here to defeat that. I'm here to walk into the heart of it and destroy it. And he's saying, yes, I, you'll see resurrection. What she doesn't understand is he says, I'm the resurrection of life. Yes, you'll see your brother actually rise from the dead. But here's the kicker. He would eventually die again. So did everyone that he healed or brought from the dead. So the, the key here isn't so much that he does that, but that he himself is the resurrection. Because here's the thing. She thinks, yes, you, you are great, but you're limited. Even when he says, roll the rock back, Martha's reaction is, no, 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 don't do that. He's already decomposing. No, 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 no. She knows all the answers, but Jesus can't reach that far. Here's the question. Do you think Jesus' resurrection can reach into the furthest depths of your story to restore death. You know, there's an interesting thing that happens to me when I go home sometimes uh, to see my family. And it's, it's, it's even kind of ratcheted up a little bit now that my sons are getting a little older. Is when I go into my old room and stuffed in closets or drawers is all this old paraphernalia, you know, it's like I'm, you know, for you Napoleon Dynamite fans, I'm kind of like, I've been called Uncle Rico, you know. Uh, it's like looking back at, you know, look at the, but, but, you know, good old days. But, you know, you see all these things and I see these photos or whatever it is, old football helmet or old, you know, books or whatever it may be. And, and to see not only me, but my sons fish through it and then they'll find something, they'll hand it and they'll say, what is this? Tell me about this. And I'll begin to, begin to look at it, and I'll, I'll search myself. I'll look in cracks and nooks and crannies and think, man, I, can't, I haven't seen this in forever. And, and it's so interesting how much it draws up both good and really hard things. I begin to actually contemplate, and I've never put language on this before until I've really studied this passage. I really begin to look at things in my life where death was really key. And I never thought ever, Jesus could reverse that. Parts of my story that I think his arm is too limited. Like he's, he can't reach there. 
Jesus, if you'd come earlier, you could heal because you've healed sick people, but now he's dead. He's way dead. How can you reach that? There are parts of me now, and I know parts of you, that you think, how in the world can Jesus reach into that? People around you that you say, man, they're lost. Is Jesus' arm limited? How do you handle Jesus looking at this? How do you, how do you handle him waiting, taking his time, because he has to not just talk a good game, he has to plunge himself headlong at the deepest enemy that we have, which is death. There's an article in the uh, New York Times op-ed piece that was really interesting. Um, talked about this. It was labeled, <clears throat> life is short, and that's the point. Our mortality is not something to be overcome. It is integral to our humanity. I thought this was fascinating. In recent years, the lure of disrupting death has become a hot industry. Paul Bennett, a partner at the design consultant IDEO, <clears throat> was among the first to tap into it. A profile in the California Sunday Magazine in 2015 described the epiphany he had. Oh, he told himself, you need to redesign death. Since then, an entire new market has flourished. Death as a conduit for innovation. Death as a participatory, participatory exhibition. Death as the organi organizing principle for networking dinners. Death as an app. There are now people who refer to themselves as longevity entrepreneurs who see death not as a problem but rather as something to be eliminated instead of pursuing a good death. Why die at all? Beneath the surface of the quest for eternal life seems to be an unwillingness on the part of its proponents to imagine the world without themselves in it. And listen to this complete opposite of what this woman wrote. There was a brief period in my own life, though, less than two years, in which I got married, lost my mother to cancer, had a miscarriage, bought a house, and gave birth to a child. Experiencing all this in so short of a time made me feel almost too humid. And the barrage of ends and beginnings left me intensely aware of the fragility of life as well as enthralled by the glorious intensity of it. And I lost I lost and simultaneously gained so much. Today, this awareness of the temporal nature of it all leaves me determined to seize, observe, and interact with the days that remain. It is the knowledge of how quickly, sometimes tragically, things can change or disappear that fuels my urgency to be in the present. Here's what's amazing about this. Every one of us are in that tension between we long for the grip of the eternal. We are. And yet we are always faced with the reality of our mortality. And you see that struggle in this article. And it's just reality. And I love how she's just honest to say, we're mortal. Why are we keep grasping at this? There's almost a bit of, of that with Martha in her look at this to say, what can you do, Jesus? What's the point here? I know that you're the Christ, but what does that have to do really with my brother's death? It is the fact 
that Jesus plunges himself into the heart of death itself to engage it with her and to show her that the only way that you can believe that this is practical and real is if I am the resurrection. That it engages with you. And Martha is the one who's composed between the two sisters. She's the one who is more of the, well, what are you going to do? I believe this. She's the one that keeps herself composed. But it's Mary who also, on the flip side, who isn't. And when Jesus encounters her, she is so uncomposed. She is actually, in the Greek, a wreck. She's an absolute mess. Complete opposite from her sister. She doesn't know what to do. There is no amount of words or truth or theology that could help her, or nor does she want that. The truth is Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is going to raise Lazarus, and he himself will raise from the dead. But in that moment, just as we sang in that song, oh, death, where is your sting? All of us in this room feel sting. Can we be honest? As much as we know and we will celebrate Easter, we know that there still feels like a sting oftentimes. And Mary engages it in a way of, she probably knows the same answers that Martha does. But she is not in a place to hold that. You know, her ability to even engage with Jesus, and she asked the very same question, where were you? Him having this discourse with her is not enough. Where were you? And isn't that what we encounter when we encounter death? Not just a death of a loved one, but that ongoing death. Those moments that you and I encounter every moment, if we're trying to run from some sort of addiction, or we've experienced actual death of a loved one, a child, a friendship, and it's something that continues to ring in our ears. Maybe it's loss and death in a way that's not necessarily even external, it's internal. Where every single morning you wake up and you think, why? Your shame overwhelms you. The things about you that you cannot stand and you wish would go away just don't. Where are you, Jesus? And here's what's amazing about what he does. It says that he looks at them. In verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also weeping with her, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He could have used the exact same line with her, but he doesn't. Instead, it says here that he began to quake with rage. The actual language here is almost like a horse. It's used in 
language outside of the Bible to describe animals who snort and rage and quake with anger. He began to do that towards the grave. And it's interesting because I, I, I get a sense that they miss it, <laughs> that the people around him miss this. They say, see how he loved him. And yeah, he did love him. But, but it feels like a whiff. I was watching this show, kind of a new show on TV, and they were playing um, Coldplay's Fix You. And I, I love that song, but it was interesting for me to see it in light of how it was being used. Lights will guide you home and ignite your bones, and I will try to fix you. Tears stream down your face when you lose something you cannot replace, and I will try to fix you. There's an element of that in this passage, and I think that's what they say when they go, he loved, he lo- looked how he loved him. But if Jesus is just about coming to fix, why react this way? What is he really doing? What is the most lonely place ever? What is the place that separates us the most? What is the place where we experience pain in its greatest depth? Death. Hear this. Jesus comes to tell them, I am the resurrection and the life, but he engages resurrection and death in places that we would never expect. He goes to every place that death stings, not just one. Not just the way we think of it physically. He goes to the depths of what death has done in the reality of the life of his friend and their sisters. How does this, how does this affect us now? How does it impact us like it did them? How would that be, instead of just a, a try to fix you, it's not just a trying, it's Jesus saying, look, pain, becoming vulnerable, connecting. Jesus connects himself to their pain so much so that it forces his entire body to quake. He makes himself so vulnerable to the understanding and the effects of death itself, which are complete separation, loneliness, isolation, that he puts himself in the position to feel it. Because if he doesn't do that, he can't resurrect us in those places either. I've talked to great therapists that help me understand this even more in my own life. But think about this, that hell itself is experiencing your pain without anyone. It's experiencing the, your pain and hurt and isolation and loneliness. And isn't the greatest ally of our loneliness and pain, death, isn't the biggest warrior that it has, death? You and I experience pain on levels, and some of you in this room have experienced pain on levels that you think are unbelievable. Whether it is over a loss of someone, or something you consistently see as a loss in yourself. 
And how in the world does I am the resurrection and the life meet that? He only meets it if he encounters every corner of it. If he meets you in his most vulnerable state because he meets you in yours. If he puts himself, positions himself to experience the sting of death, not just physically, but emotionally in every way that you have, then you can begin to understand as he is the resurrection, he misses nothing. There is no stone unturned where he has not sought out where death is and addressed it. And he does so at the expense of his own vulnerability, his own emotion, his own quaking, his own rage at what death has done in our, in our world. And to his friend, and to you. He does not stop. And it is not enough for us to think his resurrection and life, that's great, that's something that's just down the line, that's something in the future. He's trying to get Martha and Mary to understand that both of their questions, which are the exact same, coming from from completely different hearts that are being addressed, is that he is the resurrection now. Yes, there is future glory ahead, but he is not missing any part of death now. Nothing. Because if hell is being alone, he is marching into the heart of it right now. He puts himself there. This is why even later in the New Testament, Paul, the apostle, takes these words, uses even other parts of it and says things like, that I may know in Philippians 3, 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Resurrection isn't something Paul's talking about that's like something way down the line. He's saying, in the power of his resurrection, that the resurrection, do we believe that everything that we confessed earlier is not something that we confess that Jesus took care of it then, but that his resurrection power is at work right now, turning everything that you confess and you can't confess and you're unwilling to confess because you think death, nothing can pry death, pry you from death's grip, that all of that, that shame that you have, the guilt that you carry, that you think there's no way. His arm is limited, just like Martha would think, and Mary, bringing the same question. He can't, can he reach that far? Can he go to those places that I really need him to go? You see why he waited. Even though it was one of his dearest friends, he waits four days. He doesn't come. He stays. Because if he doesn't do that, he doesn't go into the places that we need him to go. This table in front of me is a reminder of that. And it's really difficult to even come to this table and imagine that we can partake in this table as anything other than a celebration of a God who, different than anything else we could imagine or conjure up, 
plunges himself into death. You know, when you take this meal, you're saying, I believe that it is through his death and resurrection, and he will come again. It's coming to this table. We're proclaiming that very thing. You're tasting a small taste of eternity here. When it hits your lips, when you take it in, it is Jesus getting into the places of you that you cannot get. It's not enough for you to just walk by. You have to take it in. Jesus doesn't just resurrect us somewhere down the line. It's not something we celebrate once a year on Easter. We celebrate it every Sunday because there is nothing about that curse in your life where you have cursed yourself and the sin around you is cursed. Everything you touch has not been redeemed by Jesus. That's how you come to this table. Celebrate eternity in him. We can grieve just like Mary We can struggle with the questions and theology just like Martha. And yet we know who holds the answers and who meets us wherever our heart is in this place. Because he meets us by making himself lonely. Isn't that what this is? He makes himself vulnerable, isolated, and lonely, and even says to his heavenly Father, why have you forsaken me? So that you can eat and drink and know that you are not. No stone left unturned. That's taste is how you know death has no ultimate sting. Because Jesus has taken it all.